Okay, saints, um, tonight, Exodus chapter 30, we continue in this chapter. Last week, we dealt with uh, ransom money. We dealt with verses 11 through 16, and today we're going to be dealing with the, the, the labor of bronze. We call it the bronze labor. And in that, we're going to be dealing with verses 17 through 21. But let's bow our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for how you do what it is that you do. Father, you have redeemed us. You have made us, Father, just holy and perfect in your sight. And then, Father, through this world as we continue to be in it but not of it, Lord, we just get tainted and you continue to wash us. You continue to sanctify us. And God, we're so grateful for the washing that your word does. We're so grateful, Lord, that the life that your spirit brings within us Father, that you've given us not only hope, but confidence, confidence, Lord, knowing that, that we can come near to you boldly before your throne of grace. And so, Father, as you had instructed Moses and the children of Israel to make these furnishings, each one we know in the volume of the book, it is written of you, Jesus. It is written of, of you, to, that, that you did the will of the Lord and, and that we want to be imitators of you, Jesus. And then we want others to imitate us as we imitate Christ. And so speak to us, Lord, through your word. Knit us to your heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, next is chapter 30, verse 17. It opens up as it has in the, the last few portions. Remember when we were there in verse 11, it said, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The same thing happens here in verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, when we get to verse 22, it's going to say, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, each one of these sections is a new declaration of the Lord. And so as we go through this, I want you to understand that within this bronze laver, within this that we're going to be looking at, let's just simply read through this passage, and then we'll simply jump into our studying. So Exodus chapter 30, verse 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, then they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and to his descendants throughout their generations. So we understand that what we see here is this is as they travel through the desert, this is a giant water basin, is what it is, and it's designed for washing. Keep in mind that as we look to this before they can do any ministry. It makes a statement here in verse 8 after it said the Lord spoke. Verse 18 says, you shall make a laver of bronze with it 
with its base also bronze, it says for washing. It is for washing. Before you can do any ministry, before there is any work done in the tabernacle, before there is any sacrifice that is made, there is a washing that needs to be done. There must be a washing. And as we see here at the end of verse 18, it says, when you make this for washing, of course, it's very obvious, it says, put water in it. Now, we know that the water in the scriptures has two connotations. There's water that deals with the outside and water that deals with the inside. And and so with that, the water on the outside is for cleansing. We know that to be the word of God. We wash it with the water of the word. The water on the inside is the Holy Spirit, that which gives life. So when we go to water and we deal with water, for the most part, we have two necessary purposes. I mean, there's other purposes we do, but two that are necessary. One, we use it to, on the outside, cleanse us. And then two, we use it on the inside to give us life. So that's the issue with the water. However, what we're looking at in this portion is not that of the inward. We're not looking at the work of the Holy Spirit that we looked at a few weeks ago. Now we're looking at the washing. And so as we recognize it, we see here there's going to be a washing. Now, With this, there's something unique. Remember, as we were going through each of the furnishings, all of the furnishings that, for the most part, had measurements. They were a cubit, cubit and a half, three cubits, and so each one had a dimension. This bronze laver is much like the menorah, the candlestick that was there. There was no declaration of how high the candlestick needed to be, There was no declaration of um, how wide it needed to be. There was just a measurement of the amount of gold that was needed to put it together. And very similar here to what we recognize of this bronze laver, that we see here that there are no measurements. So the the laver itself doesn't have the, the measurements that we would hope it would so that we can understand how big it is, how you know, large it was, how they traveled this labor through the wilderness. But I do want to share with you one aspect that will help us a little bit with some clarification. There is a passage in 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings chapter 7, we realize that what we're going to see is that this labor... Um, is going to be built by Solomon. And as Solomon goes to build that laver, what we begin to understand then is he has two of them that he's going to be making for the temple. Now, the tabernacle is temporary. It reveals the first coming of Jesus Christ and humility. The temple is more permanent. It deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ in his glory. But what Solomon does is he makes two lavers, two different lavers. He makes uh, a bunch of smaller lavers, and then he makes one large laver. In 1 Kings chapter 7, two sections I want to read for you, just so you can kind of have an idea of what Solomon has done. 
I want to read from verses 23 to 26 so you understand the large labor. And then I want to read from verses 38 through 39 so you can understand the smaller labors. In 1 Kings chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, it says, And he made the sea of cast bronze. This is going to be the giant laver that he has. They call it the sea of cast bronze. Ten cubits from, from one brim to the other. So we understand here the diameter. As it is ten cubits, understand we've talked about what a cubit is. A cubit on the average person is about 18 inches. It's a distance from between your elbow and the tip of your finger. So to the average person, that's about 18 inches. So if you're looking at what Solomon has done, he's made this sea of cast bronze. It has a 15-foot diameter, which is really huge. And so it says there in verse 24, below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, 10 to a cubit. All the way around the sea, the ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast, and it stood on 12 oxen, three looking towards the north, three looking towards the west, three were looking towards the south, and three were looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. So basically, you have three oxen going in every direction, and the labor was set upon those 12 oxen. Twelve, as you know, is that number of government. Three is perfection. And so you have, you know, three plus the four. And four, of course, is that number of balanced truth. And so you have those things pointing out to what Solomon does here, biblically, in a sense, with this um, sea of cast bronze. And it begins this in verse 26. It was a hand breadth thick. In other words, it's pretty thick. The hand breadth is the distance from about this point to that point. So you're looking at about four, four and a half inches on an average man. And it said its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, so we know that it was round. Like the lily blossom, it contained 2,000 baths. Now, for you that are, you know, like these details, a bath is about seven and a half gallons. So what we're looking at here is that this will hold about 15,000 gallons of water. Just so you kind of have an idea, um, when you're looking at, if you've ever seen a house that has a fuel oil um, drum or a fuel oil uh, tank inside a basement, that tank is about... 275 gallons. So that's a lot. Now, when you're looking at an oil tanker on a train, if you've ever seen one of those, those hold about 23,000 gallons of water. So the reason I'm giving you both of these is this. This one here is holds about two-thirds of what a tanker on a train holds. That's a lot of water. He'll go on, and I find it, it is interesting that when we go down to verse 38, it says this, then he made 10 lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths. 
So they contained 40 seven and a half gallon, you know, portions. And so they basically run about 300 gallons. So Solomon had one that basically contained 15,000. And then we see he has another 10, five on each side, that will contain another 300 gallons each. And so in verse 38, he made 10 lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths and hat on its laver was four cubits. On each of the 10 carts was a laver. And he put five carts on the right side of the house and he put five carts on the left side of the house. And he set the sea on the right side of the house towards the southeast. So now you understand that when Solomon made, it was approximately... The smaller ones were 300. The larger one was 15,000. Now, let's just take for, you know, the sake of not wanting to be an heir. Let's just say the, the, the bronze laver here that we see was the same as Solomon's smallest. So let's just say there's 300 gallons that need to go into it. When you take a look at what that is, you know, you're, you're looking at, some guy bringing about 60 five-gallon buckets to fill it. Now, it may seem like, okay, this is just, you know, a, a bunch of water to wash the priest. And in a sense, you're right, it is. But understand that they're going through a desert. Do you know how important 300 gallons of water is when you're going through a desert? Now, 300 gallons, like, okay, well, maybe the priest could drink it. You know, maybe we could drink it. Maybe we could have a part of it. But this was simply, simply to cleanse the priests. And so I think it's so important that as water is valuable, theirs are going through the desert. God is making this statement. You have to understand this is necessary. As a matter of fact, it's so necessary that what the Lord does is he makes this statement. Read again with me in verses 20 and 21 here of Exodus 30. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting and when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. Understand what God is making. This is, listen, you have to wash or you're going to die. So when you come near to minister, you come near to burn an offering, you come near to the Lord doing anything, you need to wash or else you will die. Verse 21, so they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. This shall be a statute forever. We have to understand that what God is declaring here is the first thing is that they have to concede before they do any ministry at all. They have to acknowledge that I have to wash. They, they, they don't have to inspect themselves. They don't have to look and say, oh, am I dirty? Do I need to wash? No, you, you don't get to choose whether you can determine yourself whether you're dirty or not dirty, whether you're soiled or unsoiled, you simply have to recognize that God declares you need to be washed. You need to be clean. 
the first thing about coming to minister to the Lord in this area of washing that we understand is the washing of the water by the word is I have to realize that I'm unclean. I can't come and think, well, maybe, Lord, I'm doing okay. It isn't up to me to judge whether I'm clean or whether I'm unclean. I need to simply acknowledge before I do anything that I'm unworthy. Before God speaks a word to me that I am unworthy of him speaking that word, before he does anything, I have to recognize that in and of myself, I can determine not the fact that I am clean. I have to recognize that I need to be washed. And so I go to this place to receive the washing. And as we recognize that, I just think it's so important that that we have to understand that there is a washing that needs to take place. However, there are two types of washings that we see in the scripture. The first one I want to share with you is actually found in Job chapter 9. In Job chapter 9, a couple of verses I want to read with you. I want to read to you the end of verse 28, and I want to read down to verse 33. Then I want to share with you a little bit, talk about this passage as we look at it in lieu of washing. Job says this at the end of verse 28, I know that you will not hold me innocent. Understand, soiled, unclean, dirty. Okay, I'm not innocent. I'm not clean. I'm not pure. I'm not spotless. You will not hold me innocent. You will find me unpure. And then Job declares this in verse 29. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? He said, so if there's no hope for me, if I can't be washed, then why am I doing anything? I'm simply trying to accomplish something that could never happen. And so he makes this statement, if I'm condemned, If I'm already going to die, why should I do something? Because I'm going to die anyways. Just (laughs) might as well just stop letting it be a burden. Just kill me and get it over with. Don't have me work and work and hope in vain. And then he says this in verse 30, and this is where it's key. If I wash myself with snow water and I cleanse my hands with soap, Yet you will plunge me into the pit, and all my clothes will abhor me. Job makes this statement. He says, if I wash myself with the purest, the purest of any form of liquid, and you know as well as I do when when snow falls, and I know you don't want to hear about snowfall now, but when the snow falls, It's important to recognize that when it falls for the first time, it is absolutely white. It is absolutely beautiful. It is absolutely perfect. It is pure and white and spotless. And of course, then people traps in it and the snowplow comes and makes a mess and all those other things. But when the snow falls initially, it is pure. And when Job is saying, if I wash myself with snow water, the purest of water, he makes this statement, and I cleanse my hands with soap. So I'm washing with this water, 
And that term soap is actually a misnomer. The term should more appropriately be lie. And so if you've ever worked with concrete, if you've ever worked with lye, you realize that lye has one property. It eats your skin. It takes off the upper layers and it reveals the bottom layers. It simply eats at your skin. And he's saying, if I wash with the, the, the most purest of water and I cleanse my hands so that layer after layer of my skin is, is dissolved, so that my hands could be as clean as they could be, that I'm cleansing my hands with lye, washing them with the most perfect water. He says in verse 31, yet you will plunge me into the pit. Now, why is he saying this? Well, notice what he said in verse 30. The key being this, if I wash myself, if I wash myself, this will happen. I can't do enough cleansing to make me right with you. He said, verse 31, you will plunge me into the pit. My own clothes will abhor me. Verse 32, for he's not a man as I am that I may answer him and that we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job realizes that he's hopeless standing before God. God is holy, God is righteous, God is perfect. And so we begin to see that when you try to cleanse yourself, there is no cleansing that is enough. However, there's this beautiful passage in the New Testament, jot it down if you're a note taker, in John's epistle, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it declares this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You have to understand that there's a cleansing that we try to do of ourselves, and it will never be enough. But then there's a cleansing that God does and it is sufficient. And I think it's so needing to be understand that one of the things that we do when we come to minister, the first thing is to recognize that I'm not here to minister because I have it all together. The first point, the first teaching with the labor in ministering to God is to realize that I am unclean. I am not worthy of coming to God. I need to be washed. That's why before you do anything, you go to the slaver and you wash or what? Or you die. Do you understand? You wash or you die. There is no other option. This is a, a perpetual statute forever to the children of Israel, to Aaron's sons. Now, the next thing that I want to share with you is this. There's a portion if you turn to just a couple of chapters over to Exodus chapter 38. And what I want to do is this. I want to share with you one portion of this passage. In Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, it says this. He made the labor of bronze 
and its base of bronze from the bronze mirrors of the serving women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. I want you to understand that the first thing we recognize when we come is we're soiled. We're unclean. We need to be washed. The second thing that this labor does is this. Understand that this labor was made of bronze mirrors. In other words, very highly polished brass. And so understand the next thing that we see about this labor and about what it shows us is this. The, the labor, after it shows that we're soiled, now comes and substantiates that we're soiled. It substantiates that we're not right with God. Keep in mind that when you see a mirror, what does the mirror do? Well, when you have polished brass, that's what they used for mirrors back in that day. The mirror, when you come, actually shows you what? It shows you if you have any flaws. It shows you if you don't have any flaws. And so when you look at a mirror, what happens is this. You see the truth. It doesn't make a difference what it, who you are or what you do. When you look in a mirror, you see the truth. And you recognize, oh, that's not right. So I have to fix that. And you look in the mirror and say, oh, that's not right. And I have to fix that. And so you go and you realize what the mirror does is simply substantiates, it verifies the very fact that we are unclean. And I, I think what happens is this. When you, when you look at a truth and you look at what the mirrors do, there's a portion in the book of James, and I just want to read it to you. If you want, you can turn there. I'm going to be here for a couple of minutes. But in James chapter 1, I want to start reading in verse 22. And I want to go through verse 25. And what James begins to do is this. And of course, you know that we're already going to be talking about looking in the mirrors. And so we're, this is what James is talking about. But here in James 1, it says this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. Do you understand that there's a deception that's going on? Now, when you look at a mirror, what happens is this. <laughs> you're not deceived. You can lie about it, but you're not deceived. I've, I've seen guys that they'll, they'll come and they'll look at a mirror, and what they'll do is as they look at the mirror, they'll suck in their gut, and they go, yeah, I look pretty good. And they'll walk away, and their gut pouches back out again and say, well, I don't look so good anymore, but I look good for that moment when I was there in the mirror. You're deceiving yourself. What a mirror does is substantiates, it verifies. And so a mirror simply confirms what it is that is real. In other words, it doesn't, it doesn't make things up, unless you go to a fun house, then it distorts things. But we're not talking about that kind of mirror. We're talking about an actual mirror. But here we see James begins by saying, be a doer of the word and not a hearer deceiving yourselves. When you simply hear it and you acknowledge it, but you don't do it, there's a deception. And he says in verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Verse 24, for he observes himself, goes away, 
and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, we could say, and does it, he's a doer of it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. As we see this, he simply begins by saying, be a doer of the word. If you're only a hearer, you're like this man who observes his face. Now, if you observe your face and you find something wrong with it, and you don't fix it, well, what happens is this, you're going around and people will say, wow, you've got this on your face. Oh, yeah, I know. It's been there since morning. Well, fix it. You need to fix it. And if you're not fixing it, we realize the mirror revealed what it is that you needed to do and you have to do it. Or guess what? Or you forget about the fact that you're still flawed and then you continue to go out. Everybody else sees your flaws and you are just unaware of it. But I think it's important that you need to be this doer. If you're not a doer, then you're looking at yourself You're forgetting what you see and understand that this is what the labor does. We recognize that first, it declares that I'm unclean. It just says, you are unclean. I have to concede it. I have to acknowledge it. I have to, before I even look to it, know I'm not right. I'm not perfect. I have work that God has to do in me. And then as I open the word, you know what it does? It proves it. It proves that I'm not right. Now, God already said I'm not right before I even open it. Before I even look to it, I'm not right. And then as I read it, I see him in his glory. I see him in his his beauty. I see him in his majesty. And then I see me. And I compare the two, and I'm nowhere near what I should be. I'm like Paul. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. A wretched man that I am. I realize like Isaiah, woe is me for I am unclean. We recognize that I have nothing good in me. I'm like Joshua the high priest with filthy garments. The Lord has to remove those things. And that's what the word of God reveals. The first thing is it tells me I'm soiled. The second thing is because it was made of bronze mirrors, the mirrors confirms, it verifies, it shows me the reality. And I think it's important that I need to be a doer of this word. I need to allow it to work in me practically. And so... I don't just look and see the imperfections. If the word of God says I have an imperfection, I just don't walk away from it. I repent. I ask God to do the work and I ask him to change my heart. I ask him to change my life. Change the imperfections in my walk through the power of your word and through the person of your Holy Spirit. And so what you desire of my life is to what? To bring you glory. And part of that glory is walking away from those things that dishonor you and walking to those things that honor you. And I think it's so important to recognize that this is what the labor does. 
First, it tells me I'm soiled. The second thing, it substantiates the fact that I'm soiled. And the third thing it does is this. When we wash, and I think it's important for you to note this, verse 19 says, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, so when they go in to minister, or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering. So when you're ministering inside the tabernacle, when you're ministering outside the tabernacle, whatever you're doing for the Lord, there has to be a washing. But it's important to recognize that they only wash their hands and their feet. The important thing about understanding this washing is this. When God washes you, it's sufficient. It's enough. Do you understand that when the blood of Jesus Christ is that which washes you, when the word of God washes you, you can say, it's enough. You don't have to say, oh, oh I, I need to be washed again. I need to be washed again. It's not enough. I'm still wretched. No, when God washes you, it's enough. There's a passage, and you, you know this when we're talking about the hands and the feet. There's just, there's only really one place you can go in the Gospel of John chapter 13. And what happens is this. In verse 1, it simply declares this of John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. At this point in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God. Now, I want to stop on this point for just a second because two things you have to note about Jesus in this area of ministry. He's ministering in the present. He's ministering faithfully in the now. But in order to faithfully minister in the now, Jesus has a great understanding of two things. It's said in verse 3, Jesus knowing. He had an absolute confidence of knowledge that the Father had given all things into his hands. He had an absolute knowledge that he had come from God and he had an absolute confidence that he was going to God. In other words, his past was completely, solidly secure. His future was completely and solidly secure. I came from God and I'm going to God. There's no other questions. Drop the mic, you're done. And this is what Jesus knew. He knew his past was absolutely secure with the Father. He knew his that the future would be absolutely secure with the Father. And so it frees him up presently to serve to the glory of the Father. So in verse 4, what he did is he rose from supper, laid aside his garment, took a towel, and girded himself. Understand, God himself, God himself literally takes off the robes of the master takes off the robes of the rabbi and puts on the garments of a servant. 
There's only one thing that is more profound than this, that Jesus would leave the glory of heaven and become a man. As a man, he would humble himself, become a servant. As a servant, he would humble himself to the point of death. Absolutely incredible to see here that he lays aside the garments of the master. He puts on the garments of the servant. And then it says this, verse 5, after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Think of it this way. Jesus now has a mini laver. (laughs) That's what he has. He has a small bowl. He has a mini laver. And he takes this water into this basin. He takes it into a small bowl, this little mini laver. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And he begins to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he does this disciple after disciple until he comes to Peter. And verse 6, then he came to Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Now, you think about this. What has he done to the last few disciples? He took this basin, he washed their feet, he dried them with the towel. And he now gives to Peter, what are you going to do? Let's see, have you ever heard of Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. It's the same, I'm going to wash your feet. And Jesus answered and he says to him, because Peter declares just the physical washing. I want you to understand, are you simply going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, he says, what I'm doing What I'm actually doing, you do not understand now. What does he mean you do not understand? Peter's saying, are you going to simply physically wash my feet? He said, you're not understanding what I'm doing. I am going to wash your feet, but that's not what I'm doing. That's not the real meaning of what I'm doing. What I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will understand after this. So Peter, now verse 8, said, you shall never wash my feet. The word in the the Greek is a double negative, and so it actually means you shall never, no, never wash my feet. That's the connotation he says. You shall never wash my feet. You know what Jesus said? If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. You're not connected to me. And if you're not connected to God, what does God call it? Death. If you're not going to let me wash your feet, you die. You're not connected. You're not intimate. And so now Peter goes in verse 9. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he was bathing. He'd only wash his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. It's amazing that Peter first absolute gives him a denial. You can wash nothing. Jesus says, I have to wash you or you have no part. And so Peter said, then wash it all. Wash everything. And I love the answer. And Jesus says, he was bathed and he's only to wash his feet. Now, I want to help you understand what Jesus means in verse 10. You have to understand that most houses did not have bathtubs. They didn't have showers. And if you wanted to clean, you would do one thing. You would go to a basin and you would wash what you could wash. Now, if you wanted a bath, 
you would actually have to leave your house and go down to an area of town to which they would have a bath house. And so there were bath houses that you could go, and that's where Jesus says, he who is bathed. When you go to a bath house and you're bathed, then guess what you have to do? You've got to walk back to your house. You've got to put your sandals back on your feet. You've got to now walk from the bathhouse to your, to your own home. And then you realize that he who is bathed needs what? I only got to wash my feet. Now I'm completely clean. I've already washed all of me. Walking from the bathhouse to here, there's dust on my feet. If I want to be completely clean, I just have to wash my feet. And this is what Jesus is saying. That there's an understanding that the washing that he's going to do, although he's only going to wash the feet, it is sufficient. And I think this is what's so important to understand. That when the water of the word washes you, that when Jesus is cleansing you, we understand one powerful truth, that that washing is enough. There's too many people that are in bondage thinking, it's never enough, it's never enough, I haven't been made clean. No, when the word of God shows you something and you begin to walk it, it's enough. It's enough. You, you, you can look and you can allow yourself to be condemned and condemned and condemned, or you can simply believe what it is that God has declared. Now, we understand that when Jesus is talking about the washing that there is this physical washing that was going on, but also when Paul wrote to the husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and verse 26, he said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. And he says this, with the washing of water by the word. We understand that this outward washing is the word of God. And when you're coming to minister, I think it's so important that one, recognize that I'm not coming because I have it all together. The word, before I even come, I have to recognize I need to be washed. And as I come to be washed, I realize I'm soiled. The word of God is this mirror, substantiates that I'm unclean, that I need this washing. But then when the word of God reveals it, and when I begin to walk it, guess what? It's enough. It's enough. I'm no longer in that bondage. I'm no longer in that place. And the word of God has done what it needed to do, and I'm washed. There's too many people that are constantly recognizing or to that place say, I'll never be clean. I'll never be clean. Listen, when the word of God does it, he does it. He who the sun sets free is what? Free indeed. And I think it's so important to recognize that, that what God begins to do in and through his word is he constantly comes to that place of cleansing, constantly come to that place of recognizing that once you walk the truth, you shall know the truth and the truth sets you free. It, it, it delivers you from that soil. It delivers you from that uncleanness. It delivers you from that sin, from the bondage that you were in. And so I think it's important to recognize that you do wash the hands and you wash the feet. Now, I do want to share with you one other passage just to help you gravitate to what is so important about this washing. 
there are a lot of churches. We're not one of them. And, and I've had people talk to me before about we should be a church to do this. And what I say is if you really need to do this, you can go and you can do it on your own. Um, invite someone to your house and you can wash their feet. But they're saying that there's a lot of churches that do foot washings. We as a church should also do foot washings. And this is something that we've never done. There, there's other Calvaries that do it, and I don't fault them for doing it. If the God leads them to do it, let them do it. My issue is this, and, and let me share with you what I, I look at. What Jesus does here in, in John chapter 13, he does make this statement, verse 14, or let's back to verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. I am your teacher, I am, am your Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the one sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus makes this statement, and I want you to understand, he does talk about a cleansing. He does talk about a washing. But understand that he had said in verse 7, what I'm doing you do not understand now. Here's the thing that I look to when it comes to the washing of feet. There's a passage, and if you would, just back up in your, your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. And in Mark chapter 7, there's a unique thing about the washing. When people come and they ask me, why don't we do washings? Sometimes I bring them to this passage. Sometimes I, I just say, you know, pray for us. And if God calls you to do it, you do it. But there's a point when it comes to washing. In Mark chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Pharisees came, and some of the scribes came together to him. So the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus. They came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. Now you have to understand that what they're, they're recognizing is this. It's not that the disciples' hands were dirty. It declares this, that they declared that they were defiled, unwashed. Now verse 3 tells you what they mean. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding their tradition of the elders. So what they were doing is this. They were saying there is a special way to wash. There's a unique way to wash. And what they would do is this, that they would begin to wash their hands and they would pour the water by their elbows and let it run down. And they would begin to wash to their elbows and wash to their hands. And they would wash it all the way down. And then they would turn their hands this way. And they would pour the water back on the top and let it run down to their elbows. So they've washed themselves top to bottom, bottom to top. The water always running down. So there would be no uncleanness in them. Now, they could have clean hands. But they had to do this 
as a ceremony to show everybody else just how amazing they were. And so what was happening is they turned this washing into a simple ceremony, and the ceremony was used to look at me, look at how amazing I am, look at that I've done this washing. It says in verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And of course, they're washing it in the special way, holding the traditions of the elders. And there are many other things they have that they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? Now they're coming to Jesus and say, why don't you guys do this ceremony? Now, understand, when people come to say, why don't you do this foot washing thing? Why don't you do the ceremony? Here's what we're seeing here. Why don't your disciples wash their hands the way that we do? Why don't you wash their feet the way that we do? Look at what Jesus answers and says about their ceremonial washers. He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Amazing! We're washing our hands! We're cleansing ourselves so wonderfully, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. Do you understand? They are simply doing a tradition. That tradition makes them feel spiritual. Not that they are. They feel spiritual, and how do we know? Because Jesus, after he calls them hypocrites, says this, this people, he said, Isaiah well did Isaiah prophesy of you. This is he that you were, he was speaking of. You people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. For the laying aside of the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and the cups and the many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. They understand that they leave the weighty things like justice, mercy. They leave those things like grace. And they stand on this tradition now understand that I have no problem with people washing other people's feet. I have a problem with someone wanting to wash mine. And what happens is this, because most people, when they want to do this, want it to be a ceremony in which they can feel good about themselves. And to be honest, Jesus says, honor me with this. If you want to honor the Lord in the washing of people, let me explain to you one way that you can do it. Wash them with the washing of the water of the word. Pray for them. 
and give them the word of God and allow that to wash them, allow that to do what they need. And, and don't think of yourself as superior when you wash them. Think of yourself as humble and a servant when you wash them. All too often, we as Christians find ourselves superior when we try to minister to other people. Well, I have it down, you don't. I'm the master, you're just a disciple, let me help you get it right. And that's what Jesus, don't come with that attitude. Come with an attitude of a servant. Come with an attitude that you're not worthy to do this, but yet you do what God has called you to do. Because your past is securing God. Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago and died. And your, your future is secured with God. When you're absent with the body, you're going to be present with the Lord. And we realize that here so often they turn these traditions into ceremonies. And what they need to be is this. They need to be an honoring of God. Now, I'll be honest with you that there are times or have been times that doesn't happen so much anymore, but there are still times, but there had been times early on in my walk that I would do devotions, and to be honest with you, it would be a ceremony. It would simply be a ceremony. I did this, and I feel good because I did this. And I don't even remember what I read. But I went through it, I did my devotions, I did a scripture reading, and I could just check that off of my, you know, my, my, my scriptural Bible, make a mark in it, I've read it, I'm ready to move on with my day, and I don't even know what I read. Don't even know what I went through. And this is what it is that the Lord is trying to help us, guide us, that when we do come to this place of washing, to realize that when I come to the word, I don't want it to simply be a ceremony. I don't want it to simply be a physical act. That's why Jesus told Peter, it's not simply a physical, what I'm doing, Peter, are you washing my feet? Are you going through a physical process? What I'm doing now, you don't understand. You will understand down the road. And then what I'm doing, I need you to do. I need you to do it with the heart that I do it. I need you to do it with the mode in which I do. Now, amazingly, we do not see anywhere in the scripture, nowhere outside of where Jesus was washing, there in the, the epistles do the disciples says, here is the proper way to wash a foot. Here is a proper way to do it. They don't teach it in the epistles. And so understand that when it comes to corporate worship, you know that we have these anchors that we stand on. Is it spoken of in the Old Testament? Is it reiterated there in the Gospels? Is it spoken in the book of Acts? And again, is it there taught out in the epistles? If it's all four of those things, these are the things we practice corporately. If it's not on all four things, then understand you can do that on yourself before the Lord, but we don't do that corporately. David danced before the Lord. Yes, he did. But we don't practice dancing before the Lord in the sanctuary. And so why don't we do that? Because it's not taught on in the epistles. Jesus didn't practice it. It wasn't there in the book of Acts. Here's how you dance before the Lord. Because it's only in one part of scripture, we don't apply these things corporately. It doesn't mean you can't do it personally, but what do we do corporately here as a body? 
And so within this, I just think it's so important for us to recognize that this is what God is trying to show us. This is what God is trying to do. That when it comes to this labor, when it comes to this washing, and we understand it's an external washing, so it's the type of the word. When we come to the word, it's simply acknowledge that I'm soiled. I am unclean. I have to concede that before I even open the word and then realize, Lord, when I open it, it substantiates. It becomes a mirror to me. You show me your holiness and you show me that I'm not, but you also show me a path that I can walk and that word and that path in your spirit is sufficient to cleanse. And I trust that. I don't have to say, now wash my head and wash my body and wash these things. No, if I'm in your word and I'm walking what it says, it's sufficient. It's not everything. I don't have to do everything, but I have to do what you show me for that day. And I cannot turn the reading of your word into a simple tradition where it's simply something that I check off. It says, this is the way it's done. You have to read it every day and I have to read a whole chapter. I have to do this. I don't have to do that. But when I open your word, I want to honor you. I want to glorify you. I want to see you exalted. I don't want to open your word and be a hypocrite. I don't want to honor you with my lips and have my heart be far from you. I want to open your word and and just say, here's my heart. Here's my life. Take it, wash. Do what you need to do. And I want you to take my heart. I want you to wash it. I trust you that when you, Jesus, have a hold of me, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all unrighteousness. You have my best. And I just think it's so important that when we come to this point, we begin to see here, verse 20, back in our text of Exodus chapter 30, when they go into the tabernacle meeting or when they come near the altar, whether you go in or stay out, whether you go into the tabernacle or you stay out to do the sacrifices, you have to do this. You have to wash with water. Or, or you're not going to draw near. You're not going to have a place with him. You're going to die. And so they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it's going to be a statute forever to them. This is something that they need to practice forever and ever and ever, a washing before ministry. And I think it's so important that it's, it's a blessing when you can wash before a ministry. I love our first service because we go to the Bible and Tim begins to open it up and he begins to share he begins to just say, hey, let, let me wash you before we begin to pray and before we go into the, the sanctuary and before we go in and start the, the main service. Let us do that. And I think it's so important that it needs to be this statute forever. It's a constant. You should be reminded to his descendants throughout their generation. This is perpetual. And may we take these practices as we allow the word of God to wash us. Amen. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for who you are and how you were. Oh, this word, this perfect, beautiful word. We thank you, Lord, for this labor. We thank you, Lord, that it, it makes that absolute understanding that we're soiled. It substantiates and proves it as we look that we are not where we should be. But when you, Jesus, wash us, when this word washes our, our feet, and, and we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And as we do, we do get soiled. And your word cleanses us. It, it 
make sure that we don't take the mindset of the world, but we take your mindset. How many times, Lord, when we've seen the world and we turn into the news and we're captivated by the news that we take on its mindset, and then we open your word and you change our mindset. You change how we think because we're in the world, but we're not of it. We come back to you to get clarification to what is important. It's your glory, Lord, your glory alone. And so what you wash is enough. And we want it to be sincere. When we open your word, it's not just to check off a box, but we really truly want you to do a working, Lord. Let your word wash us. Let your word cleanse us. Let your word empower us. Let your word transform us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.